Hey everyone, and welcome back to Risky Business. I am back from my trip to the USA and uh, and Brazil, uh, and I had a terrific time, a great trip to America, and then a wonderful vacation in Brazil. Uh, but yeah, it is really, really good to be back on deck. Unfortunately, Mrs. Biz, uh, Mrs. Business, just tested positive for COVID this morning, and I'm starting to feel a little bit weird. So uh, Ruh, we're going to get through today's news recording, and I'm basically outrunning the Rona, Adam. Uh, I'm outrunning <laughs> it today, and we'll see how we go. Uh, but I, I, I suspect the rest of the week is going to be a bit of a write-off. Uh, as you can hear, Adam Boileau is on deck uh, as well, and uh, we're going to be talking through all the week's news in just a moment. And then we'll hear from two of the founders of the application allow listing and execution control company airlock digital in this week's sponsor interview and we're talking to them about some changes the asd has made to the essential eight maturity models that is coming up later but first up it is time to get into the week's security news well i guess the 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 last three weeks security news with adam bialo and uh just before we kick that off adam i just want to say thank you uh for filling in for me and holding the fort while i was away uh this was my first real holiday in quite a while and i really really enjoyed it so thank you so much. Well, it's very, very well deserved. Uh, you have worked hard for a very long time to make this uh, show function and all of the other parts of it that you know, people who listen to only the main show may not realise that there is a whole empire of risky business content uh, that we produce. And uh, yeah, it's been interesting and fun uh, learning to do a whole bunch of that while you've been away. I think uh, the funniest description I've heard for the other stuff we do is someone described it as the risky business extended universe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, which yes. Is pretty much how it is. Now, look, uh, of course, every time I take a break, big stuff happens. Uh, I think really the last, you know, three or four weeks was marked by all of the ransomware attacks stemming from the so-called Citrix bleed bug. I do want to talk about this because it's a really interesting case study of how we go from bugs to massive ransomware campaigns. Uh, But let's start off by talking about the bug because it is a very interesting one. Why don't you tell everyone what Citrix bleed actually is? Yeah, it's really interesting. The bug itself is a flaw in uh, Citrix's Edge product. So they have a Citrix like um, NetScaler application delivery service. Essentially, it's the thing that they sell you to run the Edge connection for your Citrix products. So if you've got Citrix for desktop access or other Citrix things, then this is the thing that mediates access through them. So it's on the Edge your network. Great place for there to be bugs. Uh, This bug was particularly interesting because it's a session takeover bug. So you could show up to the application delivery controller on the edge of the network and take over an existing user's post-authentication session by stealing the session tokens and connecting as them. And what that means is it's post-auth, so post-multi-factor post any other controls you've got well, in the, place. Well, the session token is post-auth, not yes. the exploit, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah the exploit gets you a post-auth session after the user has already completed the authentication process and done the relevant multi-factor and then drops you into the Citrix environment, which super powerful place to go and circumvents multi-factor, which is one of yes. the things that really makes for a juicy bug in an internet-connected service these days. Yeah, so exploitation of this en masse started the day I went off to a dinner in Washington, D.C. with uh, Dmitry Olperovich and a few others. 
Uh, and this dinner, there were a bunch of policy people there. Uh, Darren Goldie, who was the Australian cybersecurity coordinator, who's since actually been recalled to defence to deal with some HR matter. I don't know what that's about, but uh, he was there. Uh, Kemba Walden, who's the acting um, uh, you know, national cyber coordinator or something in the US government. Uh, Ilya Vichuk from you know, Ukraine's SBU was there. Like a, a, an amazing dinner uh, with a bunch of officials there. And um, we're all sort of having a, a conversation. And yeah, it was just in the hours prior to me attending that dinner was when Catalan was in our Slack saying, wow, you know, exploitation is really kicking <laughs> off on this. And I did say to the dinner, because there was everyone was sort of talking about um, Scattered Spider and Social Eng. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, that's a that's a problem. But let me tell you what's just happening right now. And I said, look, you know, there's there's people who are going around and grabbing all of these session tokens. Now, whether they're initial access brokers who are going to sell them off to ransomware crews or whether it's the crews doing it themselves, like this one is going to get ugly over the next couple of months. It's, it's you know, we're on the cusp of a major event. And we have seen some pretty spectacular attacks. There was a, a major port operator in Australia was impacted. I don't know that ransomware was actually deployed or whether or not they just shut down systems when they detected someone in their network or in their environment. But that was a huge, very, very big deal where uh, the company responsible for 40% of freight uh, through ports in and out of our country uh, could not operate. And I think the systems that they closed down were the ones on the truck side. So they could get the containers off the boats, but they couldn't get them onto the trucks. Uh, you know, we saw the federal government get involved. The National Emergency Coordination Mechanism or whatever was uh, was invoked and pretty good government response, to be honest. And, and they got it all back up and running, so it didn't turn into anything material. Um, but of course, you know, when you've got ransomware crews messing with your port infrastructure, that is not good. Especially when you're an island nation like Australia. <laughs> exactly, right? Ports are kind of important. And uh, just yesterday, actually, the, the Financial Review here published a um, bunch of quotes from our uh, Home Affairs and Cybersecurity Minister, Claire O'Neill, and she has given the port operator DP World a giant serve for not patching their Citrix. Um, you know, she's basically saying, look, your critical infrastructure, what the hell were you doing? Uh, which is just so weird seeing a government minister really <laughs> zeroing nice, in on the... Yeah, zeroing in on... <laughs> actually the, the right criticism. Uh, but then we saw, and this one I think is, is even bigger, uh, the ICBC uh, ransomware yes, incident. And yes, the ICBC is, yeah, uh, the biggest lender in China and its US arm got ransomware, which actually had an impact on the bond market. Now, you know, I know that we have cyber people listening and I'm, you know, they're very smart people and most of them would know that something impacting the bond market is a big deal, but I think there's probably a few listening who don't realise just quite how big a deal that is. Yeah, I mean, they ended up owing, what, $9 billion to some other US bank uh, in the process that they couldn't settle because they had turned off a bunch of their systems. Uh, and then they had to get that capital from their Chinese parent company in, into the US to be able to kind of pay off their debts. Like, anything that involves $9 billion, you know, even didn't go missing, it's just kind of a little bit late. Like, that's still a pretty, pretty big deal. And it also sounds like uh, ICBC, which is the, 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 the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, it sounds like they paid the ransom too. So yeah. Lockbit got some money out of them. Um, and, you know, that's not a great look for a system handling billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, I, and it looks like it was the same bug. So Kevin Beaumont has been doing a wonderful job of like <laughs> yes. taking Shodan <laughs> screen caps and showing that, you know, most of these major ransomware attacks over the last few weeks, uh, you know, Shodan illustrates that they were running Citrix products at their border. So, you know, it's not proof, but 
two plus two. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I think also I saw a comment on uh, Twitter. I think it was Andrew Thompson. I'm not sure who said um, Lockbit might start to experience some active response with Chinese characteristics after this one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like messing with uh, you know a flagship kind of Chinese entity like that. Maybe a little whiskey. Although we don't really know what Chinese Hound release looks like. You know how it compares to what what we do in the West. But either way, if I were Lockbit. You know, you've had a very, very busy couple of weeks. It might be time to, you know, head down to Sochi, have yourself a, you know, a holiday break or something and just kind of get away from the computers for a little bit. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Tom Uran, our colleague, uh, wrote this up. He doesn't expect the earth to move because of this on the on the Chinese side. But I think, you know, a disturbance to the bond market is the sort of thing that winds up on the president's desk. You know, this is a, this is a very big deal. Like, this is even more of a big deal, I think, um, than Australian ports, right? Like, the bond market is the underpinning of the global economy. Yeah, like we did see because this was when President Xi was in the United States, and we did see some reporting. I think that Tom wrote up, uh, you know, about um, Janet Yellen, the the chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, like talking to a Chinese counterpart about this, and you would imagine this is the sort of thing that you know it's only kind of one notch up for that to be, uh, you know, Biden talking to Xi about this, right? It's yeah. very serious business stuff, and also embarrassing for China, right? They don't like to lose face, uh, no. and I think if you were Lockbit crew, you might want to consider that <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean i don't know what they were thinking um to be honest but then again i mean they, they don't seem to have much of a sense of lines do they no, you know ransomware not. crews generally like the sort of person who's going to ransomware a hospital uh i guess is is the sort of person who's going to do something like this without necessarily thinking it through or just not caring i guess also the affiliate structure and the sort of quite distributed nature of ransomware gangs makes it hard to you know you don't get one consistent set of of rules of engagement or, or decisions about these things. It can be pretty distributed, pretty slow, not yeah. entirely clear or well thought out. Yeah. I mean, I, I think law enforcement focus on affiliates, like sure, arrest them and whatever, but really we make a dent on this problem by going after the developers. And, um, you know, unfortunately we cannot uh, extradite the developers of these uh, uh, things um, very easily. Um, so, you know, we're back to that whole discussion about release the hounds and disruption and, and whatnot. But, you know, I, I would just think that I'm sort of surprised still we're in 2023 and things are still escalating. Now, I was in the United States. I was in D.C. during the sort of counter-ransomware initiative meetings. You know, I even attended an event uh, at the Australian Embassy, met met the Australian ambassador to the United States, who's a, <laughs> who's a former uh, prime minister here, Kevin Rudd. And, um, yeah, it's real interesting because everyone's talking. The conversation is really about frameworks. And, you know, I get it because that's how policy moves. And I think eventually it will get somewhere where there'll be better cooperation on tracking, you know, uh, uh, ransomware payments and things like that and uh, arresting affiliates that aren't based in Russia. But you do, it, it is a bit frustrating when you're sitting there hearing people talk about frameworks when this sort of thing is going on, when really what we need is, you know, either a unilateral heavy response to this or maybe some sort of five eyes response but again then you come back to the issue of resources and this is something that i heard a lot in the united states from people in ic and also people in uh, from from the fbi which is they're all really resource constrained at the moment they don't have enough um they don't have enough tech people 
at the moment to do everything that they want to do. So I think that's another issue we've got here. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's hard work working for law enforcement, and you know the the salaries in the private sector are very competitive with that. Um, but it's also really important work, and I I think. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I think we come across it later in, in the news list talking about uh, the situation with the Kilnet Russian hacktivist guy, uh, where someone was saying, um, you know, when the war in Ukraine is over and Russia rejoins the international community, all of these Russian cyber criminals, you know, they're going to be on the list of things that Russia could be. Yeah, for, for normalization, right? Like if you want to have normal relations again, you've got to hand over these yes. people. Yes. It, it may be frustrating right now, but we may see some progress in, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take. Like they can't stay isolated forever. Well, they, they, won't, they won't extradite because it's, it, it's forbidden in their constitution, right? So, so even if Russia does re, uh, normalize relations with the West, they will not extradite their own citizens, but they might lock them up themselves. <laughs> yeah, we might we might see some change in the current very frustrating situation that I'm sure if your law enforcement does feel a little bit demotivating, uh, I guess yeah. is where I was heading with that. Uh, so you know, hopefully, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's another one from later in the run sheet that I'll just pull forward now, which is Reuters is reporting that uh, you know there's a lot of uh, discontent at the moment that the scattered spider people haven't yes. been arrested because apparently the FBI knows who they are. Uh, so and, and, you know, we said these guys are going to be in cuffs, like, instantly, and that hasn't happened. Um, again, when I spoke to various people, like, informally uh, from places like FBI and said, like, why are these guys not in cuffs? Came down to two reasons. First of all, a lot of the victims of this group aren't actually reporting uh, intrusions to law enforcement, which means there's less evidence to collect and it just makes it a bit harder. Uh, and second of all, resources. It must be hard to have that information and not be able to go roll on them. I think one of the other bits in that piece uh, talked about like the fact that there's so many different bits of the FBI involved, different field officers that maybe started investigations in parallel. So there's quite a lot of you know of work to be done to put all together into one unified case and and make those arrests but yeah resourcing for law enforcement is definitely a hard problem yeah yeah it is and you know Ilya Vichuk uh from uh uh, Ukraine's SBU uh now it was a Chatham House Rules uh discussion but I asked him if I could repeat this on the show and he said that was fine uh you know he was saying that Russia is investing a lot in skills development particularly in the universities there so they are really working hard with their universities to develop a rather large workforce that can do offsec, and that means that they're going to have a lot of operators uh, in their intelligence services and whatnot. But it also means a lot of you know a lot of spare people uh, with offsec training are probably going to bolster the crime ecosystem over there as well. And, you know, he seemed to think that we need to get serious about skills development, um, maybe think a little bit less about frameworks and a little bit more about, like, just training an entire generation of people uh, uh, to who, who know how to do offensive stuff so that um, – you know, if you do need to release the hounds, you have hounds to release. So I thought that was a, that was an interesting contrast between, you know, Western policy people talking about, um, you know, the the sort of slow moving stuff versus someone who's you know uh, representing a country that's at war saying no, got to move now, got to do it now because yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's quite serious. So yeah, yeah it's fascinating certainly contrast. the contrast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, um, you know, there's there's so many uh, uh, serious ransomware attacks to talk about. The there's ardent health services. This looks like a big deal. This is just happening over the last few days. 
Yeah, this is um, a health hospital chain uh, in, I think, six different United States, uh, which is currently turning people away because they've had a bunch of their systems ransomware. i got to say, I, I, lo- I love the way you phrase that, six different United States. <laughs> six <laughs> different on, states in the United States. Um, yes. uh, yeah, it looks like this may well have also been Citrix bleed. I don't know if I have a solid source on that. It may just be like the normal Kevin Beaumont post screenshots of everything getting you know that's running Citrix. Yeah. Um, but either way, turning uh, ambulances away from hospital emergency rooms, that's real serious business. Yeah, yeah, and sadly not the first time we've seen it. No. Uh, Fidelity National Financial as well, they're investigating an Alf V Black Hat uh, 1. And I mean, you know, what's crazy is like, I know this because we've got our own little newsroom with Catalan and Tom and you and, you know, we're losing track at the moment because we're seeing, okay, real estate transactions aren't settling because conveyance firms have been affected. Um, And then you see another report that real estate transactions aren't settling and you're like, is that the same one or is that a different one? And I think there's two different uh, ransomware attacks at the moment that are affecting property transactions. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. There's Fidelity National in the United States, which is very big. uh, And then a a managed service provider called CTS uh, in the United Kingdom, which provides services for a whole bunch of real estate uh, firms and, 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 you know, uh, services in that market in the UK. That one has been reported as Citrix bleed. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. I spoke to a defence official as well. I, like, I spoke to everyone. It was absolutely amazing being in DC. And I just realised too, I didn't say a special thank you. The people who came to the NSA, uh, the podcast that we recorded at uh, NSA, so <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Um, we had a great audience there. And uh, some of the audience brought me some very special stickers that's all i'm going to say but (laughs) you know who you are and they're very cool and i will treasure them and thank you and um yeah it was funny actually i I had to pack up all my gear immediately afterwards i didn't really have much of a chance to mingle and whatnot but um yeah thank you very much for the stick for the special stickers um but yeah, I, I was speaking to a, a defense official over there who was saying the same thing, or oh, resource constraints, whatever. But I, I you know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I, that I'm, I'm finding that a bit frustrating. It's like, well, maybe we need to fix the resource constraints because, uh, you know, we're just talking about impacts on ambulances being diverted in hospitals, uh, major port operators, the bond market, you know, like at what point can we get out of this, you know, I don't know, just this rut and, and actually do something here? I don't know. You know. Yeah, it's frustrating, and you know, there's some. There are definitely people doing really good work to bring that kind of education and and to feed the supply chain of people, but we are just not willing to move at the same pace that uh, that Ilya and friends are because, you know, things just take time when you're not in the middle of a war. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we've got a North Texas water utility as well that serves 2 million people. It's been impacted. And this was like uh, so two separate water utilities with separate cyber issues in the United States, right? Much like with <sighs> real estate conveyancing. I mean, one was uh, the business systems of a water utility and the other was actual pumping stations. Yeah. Um, that one, I think, was Iranians, <laughs> Iranian activists. So, you know. I mean, I think it's safe to say that this Citrix bleed thing caused all hell to break loose. And again, we don't know that every one of these incidents is Citrix bleed, but yeesh. Yeah, it's certainly a reasonable proportion of them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a healthcare manufacturer has been impacted and whatever. Uh, some good news though, some affiliates looks like they got picked up in Ukraine and they were they were pretty serious business. Yeah, this was a group of people that were affiliates for, I think... Um, no, it was a bunch of them. It was Lokogoga, Mega Cortex, Hive, and Dharma. So, like, they 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 were, you know, tech agnostic. 
<laughs> yeah, because we've seen there was a bunch of Locker Goga people that were picked up, I think, last year sometime, and it looks like this is an, uh, an extension of that particular investigation. But it's really nice to see the Ukrainian authorities, you know, in the middle of a war, going through and doing good law enforcement and arresting these people and, you know, and keeping on with the progress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, funnily enough, uh, what did I see? I saw a Twitter thread uh, from someone who lost their phone or their phone was stolen or whatever in Kiev like a year and a half oh, ago. Yes, yeah, and then yeah. they got a call from the cops saying, oh, yeah, we found your phone. You can come and, you know, like, come wow, and, come and pick they, it up. <laughs> how do they Kiev. do this in a war? Uh, but look, you know, it's not all uh, smiles and sunshine in Ukraine. Uh, Victor Zora and uh, his boss who run the, what is it? The SSSSSSCIP? Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically the, um, you know, Ukrainian CISA. Uh, they've been stood down and then arrested for corruption uh, and, uh, and bailed. It looks like the allegation is in the years leading up to the war, they were um, just doing some, you know, the allegation is they were doing some pretty standard sort of embezzlement, uh, directing... Uh, you know the government to buy software at inflated prices from their from their mates and getting kickbacks and what that seems to be the allegation. But yeah, not a good look, and, and certainly not great. Uh, I mean, Zora's out on bail and has been on on Twitter and said that he's you know going to fight it. I think uh, the other guy uh, has been basically pretty quiet about it, and we'll see how yeah. the how the process goes. And and it's funny know, because Zora's the deputy, but he's the one everyone knows his name because he's really been out there, you know, talking a lot to Infosec Media. We've never dealt with him, but yeah, yeah, well, like he's been on stage at Black Hat, and he was at you know, yeah. he keynoted Cyber Warcon in uh, in the US. So yeah, he's definitely been out there, and you know, it's kind of hard to judge from the outside, you know, exactly what we're seeing, you know, whether it's mm. well, for I mean, real, I don't think anyone would say whether that- it's. I don't think anyone would say that there's no corruption in Ukraine. You know, well, like yeah. it's been a it's 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 a known problem. But I, I did find just in retrospect, I find it interesting then that when we had Ilya uh, on the show, he was really talking like I don't even remember if this survived the edit, but he was at pains to talk about the transparency when people are helping. Uh, Ukraine now where you know everything goes onto a website you can see exactly where the money went what it was spent on and he was just really talking about that a mm-hmm. lot and it's like I guess this is maybe why this know? may well be it yeah and I guess that if there's a lot of eyes and a lot of pressure and and in ways that there were you know a, a lot of visibility into Ukraine in ways that there weren't three years ago you know when there wasn't so much a there wasn't so much international interest so yeah it's probably it, it's good to see people being persnickety about that kind of thing <laughs> yes yes and i can't believe i said it's not all smiles and sunshine as my segue into that piece because i think it's fairly obvious that it's not <laughs> it's all smiles not. and sunshine in ukraine at the moment uh they're still right in the thick of it fighting very hard it's it's yes. it's miserable and uh yeah so sorry if i seemed flippant there it was um segue reflex let's just put it that mm-hmm. way uh, what else have we got here? NXP, the Dutch chip maker. Uh, apparently, they had uh, Chinese APTs all up in their network for a couple of years. Yeah, the reports are that the were the Chinese Chimera Group, which I think is state-sponsored, uh, was in there from 2017 till at least 2020. Uh, and had been rummaging around stealing intellectual property. This is the same group that we've seen inside chip manufacturers in Taiwan as well. Uh, so that kind of all, all lines up. Uh, interestingly, NXP says they only found out because they connected to some like uh, KLM subsidiary that then detected the connections from KLM going back into NXP. Uh, and then that they brought Fox IT in, everyone started investigating, and now it looks like, yeah, they've been in there for quite some time. And, like, this is not unexpected in terms of, of Chinese MO, uh, but 
NXP is a pretty big deal. Like they make chips that go into a great many things, including a lot of, you know, uh, embedded systems, smart cards, radio systems, uh, you know, your Yubico, you know, YubiKey or your Google Titan or whatever else are probably also NXP chips. Uh, mm. So, you know, I looked at this and I thought, well, you know, there's a lot you could do inside NXP uh, if you were the Chinese Gov. Well, if you were to fiddle with some of their firmware or whatever, yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's the industrial espionage aspects. There's potential for learning about security flaws or how to get key material out of keys. We've seen some work yeah. done with side channels on NXP chips in the past. So there's just a lot you could do in there. And NXP clearly needs to take it a bit more seriously if they're going to be trustworthy. Well, I mean, we don't know that they weren't. You know, no, um, but I mean, if they've been in there for years and didn't spot it <laughs> yeah, themselves, okay, okay, you know, okay. Fair, fair enough. Serious now, business. look, let's let's just take a moment, and we've been doing this a bit lately, and I feel guilty about it, but I do kind of stand <laughs> the North Korean APTs. I do kind of stand them, and it's and it's for the reason that you outlined once, and it really explained to me why I stand them, which is that they're not constrained. No. They are not constrained at all in terms of being able to jump into the supply chain and hack their way through three different suppliers to land on, and to see where they land, right? Um, and they've been busy lately, and it just everything we're seeing coming coming out of North Korea uh, at the moment is pretty cool. Uh, but walk us through the, the latest. Uh, yes, so I mean, I, I first 100% agree with you. I mean, the North Koreans just get to hack in a way that everyone else must be just deeply jealous of. Like yeah, if you're, like if, you're, if you work at NSA and yes. you're like, I would really like to hack this major technology company so that I can get a shell on Adam's box. Yes. You know, the lawyers are going to say no. Whereas if you're North Korean, they're like, Hell have yeah, it. go for it. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, deeply jealous. Uh, and uh, I and you and I are not the only ones, uh, you know, that are like, we, we do got to hand it to the North Koreans. They, they get the job done. Uh, anyway. There's been a bunch of supply chain attacks lately that have come to light. Um, there was a joint advisory put out by the United Kingdom uh, and South Korea talking about, in general, North Korean supply chain attacks and giving some some TDPs and and things that people can look for. Um, there's been uh, there was one with like Jump Cloud a while ago that they were using to get into into people. Uh, there's Magic Line NX, which made Auth software, which was used by South Korean government entities for Auth. Um, so that was an interesting one to back. I mean, that's that's where you want to be if you're DPRK. Right? Well, like, well, exactly. You know. <laughs> uh, another one we saw pretty recently was a company called Cyberlink, who are like a Taiwanese software manufacturer that probably most people would remember from, um, like, if you watched DVDs on your Windows box in the mid two thousands, they made the like power DVD thing that everyone used to play back DVDs once upon a time. Anyway, they got into that uh, and backdoored a whole bunch of their software. Uh, like signed it and everything, um, nice. so that if you downloaded, they did it right. They, they did, did it, it right. right. They did it. They did it right. And so yeah, if you downloaded Cyberlink software from their legit site with legit certs, it was pre-backdoored by North Koreans. Which you know, that's just that's just you know, yeah, I, I'm I'm here for that. That's good work. Uh, so and they're, they're also pushing a bunch of macOS malware at the moment as yes. well. Yes. Like pushing the state of the art with the the old Macs. Yeah, yeah, we've seen them uh, going <laughs> after cryptocurrency firms, which obviously is a thing that they do. But in this case, you know, there's a lot of Mac users in crypto firms, uh, so showing up with you know not 
technically super sophisticated macOS malware, but gets but, the job done. Yeah, it's which not is done if what, it works, etc. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah, good. Like in terms of outcomes-based hacking, you know, things that <laughs> North Koreans get done in terms of money stolen or access to stuff gained. Yeah, they they they're killing it. So yeah, I mean, and I mean, some of this is linked to uh, espionage. Obviously, it's not all crypto theft, but. Yeah, they've just really scaled up in a way that I think is impressive. Like, I've always had that argument with Dimitri about, like, he's like, no, they were always good. And I'm like, yeah, they were always good, but they, were, they, they weren't operating at this sort of scale. It's like, you know, it's impressive. Yeah. Like, I hate to say it. Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, Microsoft, I can't believe I'm going to say these words, but Microsoft <laughs> has decided that maybe it's going to put it's key mat in a HSM uh, <laughs> so that things like Storm 0558 don't happen again. Now, look, I think this is good. It is. It but is good. I, but, but but I don't really think the issue was that they didn't have their keys stored in a HSM. You know, like at, at, at the sort of scale that Microsoft operates. So, of course, we're talking about the Storm 0558 hack where uh, the theory is that an attacker obtained a, a key, uh, some key material from a crash dump in Microsoft's network and then used that to sort of mint authentication tokens and steal email from the State Department and whatnot. You know, the issue that I have is that that key was originally created in, I think, 20, 2016. Uh, and, you know, years later, someone comes along and steals it and then uses it. Now, the reason we rotate keys is so that that's not a problem. Like, that's the whole point. And I'm guessing Microsoft is going to say, uh, you know, eventually, because uh, there is a CSIB report coming on this, and I'm guessing they're going to say, oh, but that's, but that's hard. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah it is but yes. you you know you're one of the biggest companies in the world yeah, when you're with your um, auth system for half the planet hard yeah. you need like hard as a bar that you need to be able to leap over <laughs> totally so look i think it's great that they're going to start sticking keys in a in a hsm um now whether or not that is just like root of trust and then they're going to have like operational keys uh that that sort of get signed by that root of trust and then you know used in in non-hsm systems i'm guessing it'll be something like that yeah but i think the bigger issue here is that they should be rotating these keys every few weeks i mean it's ridiculous we just did a ssl key rotation on risky biz which is annual because I can't use Let's Encrypt for a whole bunch of boring reasons, but we do an annual key rotation and Microsoft can't do a seven-year key rotation <laughs> for its yeah. root of trust signing key for all of the world's email. Like, you know, insane. Yeah, yeah it, it is insane. And, you know, I, I do have sympathy for some of the problems that they have to solve at a scale that's kind of unprecedented and with a, an availability. Cons like if they screw up the key rotation, it's going to break email for half the planet. So I can I have yeah. some sympathy for their operational people. No doubt it is hard. Yes. So like it, it is hard and we, we certainly acknowledge that. But the fact that it is such important key mat and Microsoft runs Azure, which is, you know, got to be one of the biggest platforms on the planet, uh, that has HSMs and, and things that like all their customers have access to a bunch of the tools to do this properly. Microsoft should also be eating their own dog food. Yeah. And I think like it's, it's just the point that Azure has moved so much in that time and how many legacy assumptions or legacy choices like this are still kicking around. And Microsoft needs to, you know, store this key material well and think about key rotation for this one. But they also need to go through and say, what other skeletons are in Azure's closet that we need to go back and revisit now that it is so important? 
Yeah, yeah. So I think that look, I mean, what they they you you're quite right that they've announced high frequency key rotation as part of this, right? Um, so I think maybe it's just the headline that I'm mad at. Yeah, I mean, all well and good, a little bit too late in my view, but you know they did announce their big uh, uh, new secure future initiative which some people have been comparing to the old, you know, 20-year-old trustworthy computing uh, memo that came out under Bill Gates back in the day. Our colleague Tom Uren did a big write-up on that for, for Seriously Risky Biz where he said, yeah, this actually looks pretty weak source and he's not convinced. Yeah, I mean, we, Tom and I had a great conversation on the Seriously Risky Business podcast about this and, you know, there are a bunch of good ideas in there in terms of the engineering side, but big picture leadership-wise, it did seem pretty thin, and I was certainly concerned about the let's just AI our way out of this part of it. Like, that's not a thing that belongs in a, you know, leadership statement for security of a company the size of Microsoft. Like, it's a tool you can use, it's interesting to investigate, but, like, don't tell me we're just going to throw AI at this and it's going to make it better. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Now, uh, we've got a piece here from Darina Antonik, uh, which you spoke about earlier, which is the apparent head of Killnet, which is the Russian you know, hacktivist crew that DDoSes everyone, uh, has been doxxed. And really reading through this story, Darina's based in Ukraine, uh, you know, so she's closer to, to all of this. And really reading through this story, you get the impression that the reason he got doxxed is because nobody likes him. Yeah, I mean, Kilnet's kind of, uh, I mean, it's kind of like a Russian anonymous in a way. Like, it's it's one of these like more hacktivisty, more splashy, less actual technical hacky kind of groups. And Kil Milk, the the boss of Kilnet, was one of those kind of personalities that's more about kind of image and self promotion and 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 being seen rather than actually doing badass technical hacking. And I. It sounds like, given that he had a history of doxing his enemies, it's kind of not surprising that he ends up in the same fate. Yeah, so you really get the impression this isn't like, you know, Ukrainian hackers doxing him. It's like his mates who are just like, we don't like you. Yeah, like I kind of think he's just kind of made enough mess in the scene. And the fact that we saw a state-owned media outlet doing the initial doxing does also send a little bit of a message, I suppose. Uh, so not really very surprised. I mean, it's always nice when Brian Krebs does it, but uh, you know, yeah. I guess we should also be happy when uh, Russian media is doing it too. Now, James Reddick over at The Record has this absolutely terrific and disturbing piece up, which is really about when civil wars meet pig butchering. This is just, this is insane. This is such a wild ride. And when you click through, he's also linked to a uh, VOA, Voice of America News piece like the stuff that is happening with these, this human trafficking into pig butchering call centers and whatnot is insane. And this story is really about how these um, uh, rebels that are fighting against the government in Myanmar are now targeting the pig butchering operations that are on the border with China. And they're actually getting support from the Chinese government because... Chinese nationals previously had been gunned down by uh, Myanmar border guards when trying to flee a raid on a compound um, where people were doing pig butchering. I mean, this stuff has has gone crazy. Uh, walk us through it. It's it, wild. It, it wild, really, wild, wild. It really is wild. And, and like you, to understand the story, you kind of have to understand a bit of like Myanmarese background, I suppose, where there is a region on the border of China. Um, the kind of roughly the size of Lebanon um, called Kokang, and 
it's kind of self-administering and there's a local border guard force that is the like the local military that is sanctioned by the kind of Myanmar government but not really directly controlled it's kind of a little bit independent does its own thing and that region has been a hotbed of all sorts of crime uh, and its proximity to China and the border trade means you know smuggling and, and all sorts of things going on and that's where most of these pig butchering you know scam centers have cropped up and we've seen people ending up in these you know kind of centers through uh, you know just being like kidnapped we've seen people lured there with fake jobs we've seen people you know kind of forced there by family you know connections and so on and it's a real kind of lawless region and the previous raids that we've talked about with the Chinese law enforcement kind of going across the border, cooperating with local law enforcement to raid stuff has been one part of China's response to this. But we're also seeing local um, you know, military groups, so rebels in the context of the Myanmarese government, but kind of people who are against the current administration in that region that then want to go and fight. And one of the things they are want to do is go and... and you know, tear up a bunch of these scam call center operations as part of their fighting against what they see as oppression by, you know, the local uh, government group. So it's a real intersection of crime and lawlessness and cross-border politics, and it's not surprising to see it, uh, you know, interacting with our, you know, computer security world in this way but the story is just wild you know yeah yeah so i mean we obviously we've linked through to those ones uh in the show notes go have a read because it's just like you know yeah crazy now we're going to talk about the 702 surveillance authorization yes. um in the united states and I, I had some really fascinating conversations with people from nsa and fbi uh when i was in the u.s talking about this uh one of, one of the cases where i'm at odds with them um a couple of times you know, I was saying, look, I don't think you should really be able to use data collected under 702, you know, incidental collection on Americans to use it as evidence of a crime. It just seems wrong to me. And they're like, yeah, but that data was already collected, and which is just such a dumb argument because it was incidental collection and it was never collected for that purpose. I said to him, really, you're going to run with that argument? Please go to Congress and say <laughs> you want to stand up 702 for this purpose and see what they say. And all of them would just shrug and go, yeah, okay, fair enough. Right? <laughs> so... You know, the, the issue here really is that the FBI was querying the 702 data set uh, too often and for unclear purposes. And, you know, it doesn't really return much because uh, when this data is collected, the tasking is not done by FBI, it's done by NSA and it's targeting foreigners. But, you know, maybe there's a little bit of adjacent data that is, in, you know, uh, incidental and, hey, the FBI can use that. Again, I think that's wrong. I think in the case of national security risks and threats, uh, counter-espionage, counter-terrorism, I think it would be justified, but not just for the evidence of any crime. That is insane uh, to me. And we've seen some lawmakers propose, uh, you know, a warrant requirement for the FBI to uh, get at 702 data. I think probably that might even go a little bit far. It, it's complicated by the FBI having both the, the domestic counterintelligence role and a, a law enforcement yes. traditional crime fighting yes. role. And if they were different agencies, you wouldn't give the FBI access to this data set. Sure. I think one other wrinkle too is that the FBI only does investigate very serious crimes. Yes. Um, but, you know, should you be using in evidence that was incidentally collected via 702 to pursue a fraud case? And I, I think not. Uh, personally, that's just, that's just where I sit on it. So it looks like what's happening is it's going to get attached to a must-pass bill, which is the NDAA. Uh, 
the White House is pushing for no warrant requirement. And it looks like what they're going to try to do is attach it to the NDAA, get a further reauthorization for 12 years, uh, and get compliance officers at places like FBI. You know, I, I, I don't think this is the end of the world, but it does feel a little bit backdoor surveillance to me. Uh, so I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it. I do get the impression NSA is quietly furious with the FBI <laughs> for jeopardizing what is an extremely important program. So, you know, absolutely it needs to get renewed. And FBI doesn't still doesn't really have a good explanation for how the naughty searches happened, uh, the naughty queries. And uh, yeah, so as I say, gritted teeth from NSA people when talking about it and shrugs from the FBI people <laughs> when talking about it. So clearly something needs to change here, but I don't think it's going to wind up with a warrant requirement just yet. Staying with America, the FCC is implementing new rules for telcos over there to help combat SIM swap fraud. This is this comes in the wake of the CSIB, the Cyber Safety Review Board uh, report uh, into uh, lapsus and you know other other uh, types of actors who use similar TTPs. The idea is. Yeah, they're going to, like if someone tries to SIM swap you, they will send you an SMS saying, hey, are you trying to actually uh, port out your SIM card and and whatnot? So this will hopefully solve uh, some of the problem. As was pointed out to you and I by a friend of ours at Microsoft, um, this only solves a half of the problem because another issue is that quite often the people doing the SIM swaps actually have shells at the telcos and they're just logging in and doing it themselves. Um, so it's not going to solve that part of it, but you know it is a positive development. Yeah, I mean anything that adds more friction to those processes is going to do something to to make it better. Um, you know, I know Dan Gooden over at Ars had a piece uh, that he wrote up, and he said basically I'm pessimistic in the headline about how effective it's going to be because the FCC haven't. Uh, made any real like concrete rules and there's quite a bit of latitude given to the telcos about what the controls they implement look like but anything that adds friction to this is going to improve it and as you say the problems of people who are inside the telcos already or inside people who've got access through retailers or blackmailing them all of the other things we've seen uh you know the underground sim swapping community do like they're a resourceful group and telcos are not (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. now look uh, i just want to touch on this one briefly uh there's a proposal in the eu um where member states could demand that browsers like that they can put a certificate into the root store of of a browser uh and um it would be respected and stuff and this has caused a lot of controversy with people saying oh no but it's going to be used for surveillance and whatnot and i i just don't think that's what this is for i understand why people would be a little bit um you know, worried about that. But that to me seems more like a concern from 10 years ago before we had things like cert pinning and whatever and browsers alerting you when certificates look a little bit funky. Um, So again, I don't think that's the intent here. I think this is more about the EU being just very EU and crazily (laughs) bureaucratic and saying, yes, of course, we need to be the root of trust for identity services in in our states and we need the browsers to cooperate and whatever. So I get why people are protesting this, but... You know, I think it's dumb and bureaucratic, but I don't think this is a ploy to do surveillance. I think that's the wrong take here. Yeah, yeah, I think I I agree completely. I mean, the EU, like this probably has been grinding through the EU process for about 10 years, years. which is why it seems such old thing. Uh, And, you know, modern controls like 
certificate transparency reporting, you know, where every cert that's going to get issued gets shoved into a CT log so that people can see what certs are being issued. If it was being used for surveillance, they will get snapped like in, yeah. in five minutes and it will be super embarrassing. So the idea that this, like just having a root CA cert used to let you man in the middle anything and do anything you want. These days it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why this is less scary. It's done, but it's less scary because the modern SSL mm. ecosystem, as you say, is just a bit more mature than that. But I think it also speaks to the different mentality in EU member state governments versus the US, where, you know, in the US, the government is the enemy always, you know what I mean? It must be <laughs> minimized and keep out of people's lives. Yeah. And, um, you know, in other other countries around the world, particularly Europe, um, you know, the idea is the government is there to do, you know, fulfill certain functions and, um you know, if putting a, a a key into everyone's browser is going to help them deliver some sort of service or function, they're going to demand it, you know, yeah. so. And I mean, plenty of other countries have root CAs, you know, under their control. So you can see why the Europeans would want that too. But I don't, it's just mostly the European regulatory process is so slow and unwieldy and we end up with, you know, everyone in the world having to click through cookie banners all day, every day because the EU. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, look, let's. Uh, what's real funny about kick, clicking through those cookie banners is that's, and a lot of people wouldn't remember this, but that's how the internet was in the 90s. Yes. So it was really when people just had that interpretation of like cookies, well, there could be a bit of a legal issue here. We need to put these pop-ups and whatever. It's just so weird that we've gone back like <laughs> 25 years yeah. in internet time to having to swat away all of these things. Yeah. But anyway. EU time. Yeah. So uh, look, uh, got a couple more things to talk about real quick. Uh, let's just touch on this one briefly, but uh, Google researchers have found some CPU bugs that actually look quite interesting. Yeah, there was a, a write-up from Tavis, you know, of a bunch of research uh, that came out of you know teams all across Google that have been fuzzing CPUs, and they found some issues in uh, like instruction decoding on Intel x86, you know, x64 CPUs that can basically lead to you know. The CPU getting into a state where it doesn't want to work anymore. And if you do it just right, you can basically cause the whole CPU to hard lock and reset itself. Uh, and you can do it from inside VMs. So from that point of view, some availability issues for cloud providers. Uh, they haven't got a concrete like privilege escalation situation for it, but... Uh, that's kind of because the bugs themselves are way in the guts of the microcode of, of modern Intel CPUs. Now, I just want to touch on this one quickly as well. It's a story from the Globe and Mail in uh, Canada. You remember when the Huawei CFO was arrested, uh, detained in Canada, and then the Chinese government detained the two Michaels? Yes, uh, yes, So yes. that was, yes, uh, Michael, Michael Spavor and uh, what was his other name, Kovrig? Yeah, Kovrig. Um, so, you know, the thinking was that these two poor Canadian fellows were being held as hostages uh, to allow the release of the Huawei CFO. Turns out we might owe China a bit of an apology on that one, <laughs> uh, Adam. So I'm just going to read the first few paras, uh, paragraphs from this uh, Globe and Mail story. One of the two Canadians jailed by China for nearly three years in a case that was at the heart of a diplomatic crisis is seeking a multi-million dollar settlement from Ottawa, two sources say, alleging he was detained because he unwittingly provided intelligence on North Korea to Canada and <laughs> allied spy services. <laughs> Michael Spavor alleges that the deception was conducted by fellow Canadian prisoner Michael Kovrig and it was intelligence work by the latter 
prisoner that led to both men's incarceration by Chinese authorities, according to the sources. So looks like maybe there was actually something to it, you know. And, <laughs> and, and if that's true, you would imagine that that would be immensely frustrating for the, you know, for the Chinese <laughs> intelligence people who are doing good work and catching people for actually doing spying mm. and then being told, oh, you're just keeping hostages, you know. So. <laughs> One of the Michaels, Michael Spavler, he's the guy that arranged uh, Dennis Rodman going to North Korea and he's yeah. like posting pictures of him drinking cocktails with Kim Jong-un and like kind of not surprising that he would have some interesting data about what's up in North Korea and then, yeah, the other Michael kind of talked him into sharing some stuff and reported it back to Ottawa goes the story. So so maybe Spavor, you know, the the idea here is that what maybe Spavor was what they call a useful idiot and yeah. then the other guy sort of cynically exploited him. That, then again, I think the sort yeah. of person who organises tours for Dennis Rodman to North Korea, can we take him at his word, right? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, yeah, like like that guy's either got a screw loose or is, is, I don't know, you know, we did very much just go, well, that's China you know, being to Canadians because yeah. geopolitics, but actually, yeah, it may well have been legitimate counterintelligence work. So yeah. Counterespionage arrests. Yeah. Like legit. So, yeah. uh, but I mean, of course we don't know, right? Like we it's don't. just a lawsuit. Uh, it could not be correct. The guy, you know, has a very weird job and uh, probably a very weird outlook <laughs> yes. on the world. So it could be wrong, but you know, who knows? Like, wouldn't it be who crazy knows? if that, if it turned out that way? Uh, and just look, uh, we're not even really going to talk about this one, but just we threw it in our, as our last link in this week's uh, run sheet. But Andy Greenberg wrote a terrific feature for Wired uh, about the three young hackers who built the Mirai botnet and, you know, where are they now? And uh, it's a great read. Yeah, Andy Greenberg does a very good line in these kinds of you know long form background stories of of hackers and criminals and, and other people who've been through the system. And yeah, it's well worth the read. And you know, Mirai, you know, is still very relevant today. I really enjoyed the bit where he kind of relates what it feels like to wake up in the morning and read news headlines about a thing that you wrote that's going crazy around the world. And yeah. then like, how do you integrate that into your, into your, you know, your days, the day in your life. So it's yeah, well worth a read. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mate, that's actually it for the news. Uh, great to be back on deck. Uh, great to chat to you. And uh, yeah, thanks again for holding the fort while I was away. Yeah, no problem. It was uh, it was fun learning a bunch of the extra risky business stuff that happens behind the scenes here at, uh, at HQ. So yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Uh, big thanks to him for that. And uh, yeah, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with one of our favourite sponsors, Airlock Digital. Uh, Airlock makes allow listing software that works really well at scale. Uh, and I think actually calling it allow listing, and people have heard me say this a million times, I think calling it just allow listing is a bit too simple because it really gives you the ability to finally control the way things execute on your endpoints. So it's really good at stopping things like living off the land techniques, which are all the rage with Chinese APT crews at the moment. So if you're a defense industrial based company, you really do want to have a look at Airlock. So Airlock founders, Daniel Shell and David Cottingham joined me for this conversation uh, about a recent update to the Australian Signals Directorate's Essential 8 maturity models. There's been a lot of talk online about uh, the new models uh, imposing heavier recommendations or requirements for things like phishing resistant MFA. Uh, but we zoomed out a bit to talk about the models a little bit more generally and some other aspects of them. 
The first voice you hear will be Airlock's uh, CEO, David Cottingham, and uh, the other voice, of course, is Daniel Shell, who is Airlock's CTO. Enjoy. The essential eight maturity model is that it's essentially eight <laughs> controls that, um, you know, it, it, I actually say, if you need to do eight things to defend yourself, these are the eight things that you should do because we consider them essential controls. But the maturity model is a recognition that not all implementation is created equal, right? So you can implement some things badly, which is sort of maturity level zero, or you can implement some things really, really robustly, which is maturity level three. And then there's maturity level one and two, which are sort of the gray areas in between. And they're getting, uh, you know, they keep tweaking with uh, all these different maturity levels with individual things you should do. So for example, you know, the patch timeframes for maturity level three is if there's a critical uh, vulnerability that gets released by a vendor, you need to patch within 48 hours uh, to stay ahead of attackers. But, uh, you know, you're only going to patch within one month if you're on maturity level one. So the, the success of this whole model has been that it is very succinct, easy to understand, easy for organizations to pick up and say, okay, I'm going to do these eight things and that's going to keep me, you know, secure for the majority of uh, attacks that ASD yeah, and I mean application uh, allow listing is part of the essential eight has been for a long time, but it only kicks in it kicks in to different degrees based on the maturity level, right? That's correct. So we actually started, you know, Airlock as a company based off this standard when it was first released. It used to be called the Top Four, which was, um, uh, you know, released back in about 2012. And uh, you know, we we found that really hard to do. It was it's mandatory for all federal government agencies uh, in Australia to implement these controls, and you know, essentially spurred us to start a, a company off the back of it. And I think it's been a great tool in order to sort of influence the market in terms of this is you know, these are the real controls that we want you to meet and, um, you know, drive innovation in these areas. So look, we love the standard and uh, it's really interesting some of the updates that have come in for November 2023. Uh, they seem to be, you know, tightening up the controls, of course, and becoming more prescriptive. Well, I mean, that's, that's how these uh, maturity levels uh, tend to go, right? It's like they just gradually tighten them and make them a little bit more, a little bit more serious as time goes on. But one thing that I found interesting in this release compared to, you know, all the, all the other ones which have come in the last decade is there seems to be a little bit of self-awareness uh, and practicality creeping into these controls. There's actually been some controls that are loosened and wound back, which is like, hang on, this might actually be too difficult. So instead of like, for example, with patching, you know, it says patch internet facing stuff within 48 hours, but forget about desktops for critical patching you should do that within the first month because they're not normally the things that get compromised. So how about you concentrate your effort on your rapid patching to the stuff that is over here and then we'll give you a break on not trying to say, hey, everyone patch your entire network within 48 hours, which I think is interesting. Yeah, so what's really been interesting is that or the change that's happened in the patch management side of things is that for maturity level one, and this wasn't a requirement before, it's like internet facing things must with critical vulnerabilities must be patched within 48 hours. So that's actually really moved forward to being yeah. like, hey, you need to do this quick. And obviously it's a reaction to like, you know, now you would say that, hey, if there's a new vulnerability discovered, you know, people react, <laughs> you know, the hackers are scanning the internet within 48 hours. So, you know, Get, you better get going as soon as possible while yeah relaxing for like internal stuff but the wording and i've seen this now where i talk to all my customers about implementation so i was talking about hey internet facing service or not internet facing that's like one of the big groupings now where they're like you know we care first about the internet facing servers and then yeah okay we've sort of deprived the rest a little bit um but we need to get to that first so what they've done is for patches to um 
all vendor mitigations to vulnerabilities in productivity suits, web browsers, and extensions and office applications should still be applied within 48 hours at level three. So I yeah. guess you know anything that accesses the internet, you know, then you're, that you're talking, I guess, about phishing at yeah. that point. Where if you can trick a user into opening something, then yeah, you have to patch that stuff quick. But not just everything all the time, right? Yeah, so I think I think one thing that's that's also uh, I- interesting reading the the changes in this, you can see the types of arguments that incident responders are having with organisations when they go into them, and they're trying to be more prescriptive in certain really nuanced areas. For example, uh, event log collection. Um, you know, they're saying you can't just use. Uh, uh, you know, PowerShell logging is not using application control to log which. PowerShell ran, we actually want you to log the contents of PowerShell. So people have obviously had PowerShell logging say, here, here are all my PowerShell scripts which have run and seen like the files that have executed, but they haven't actually had the contents of the PowerShell, which is what incident responders are looking for. So they've changed it to say, no, you actually need module logging, script log logging and transcription events enabled. So we have the content, not just the metadata of what's actually executed, because that's what's useful for us as incident responders. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think the danger here for the essential eight, the, the advantage has been that it's really easy to pick up, understand and, and and build a plan around as an organization for your security strategy. But if we start to get into the real specific nuts and bolts and it starts to become a document which is 40 pages long, I think that it starts to lose some of that uh, yeah. advantage, I guess, out there. Um, and... You know, they put requirements on for nearly every control in there now that event logs from this mitigation. So let's say patching, you know, you need to have your patching logs are protected from unauthorized modification deletion. Uh, But, you know, that's a requirement across eight controls times eight. It bloats out the document and it just becomes more technically difficult to pick up and understand where it was a great sort of management tool before. So I hope that they don't keep adding complexity prescription as much as I understand that we live in an industry that demands it. Um, I'm a bit more forgiving, I think, than you are of that because at least they're starting from a a position of like here are eight controls and and obviously like, yeah, just implement patching is one of the, you know, is one of the essential eight, right? And that that is their PhD thesis is on that, right? So I kind of understand how you can start with something very simple, but when you get into the detail, it actually gets quite complicated. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in two minds about that. Um, but what, what are the changes that have affected? Because, you know, we often see with like NIST and with the ASD essential eight and whatever, they often move around um, the application allow listing and control stuff. Like they either make it, well, more people have to do it or fewer people people have to do it and they tend to kick it around in the maturity levels a bit. Have there been any changes uh, in this latest update to the essential eight maturity models? Yeah, there has been. Um, what they've said, for example, is that at level two maturity, you now require like event log retention and, and centralized logging as well. You know, that's really focused for like AppLocker and WDAC where by default, you know, they log to the Windows event log and that's the end of it. So you, know, you still have to find it, you have to collect all those logs centrally and look at them right otherwise you don't know what's happening on the individual endpoints what's being blocked so you know it's pretty important to get that you know brought into it um and there was another change as well which maybe was more of a statement in the piece where they've sort of said hey you know implementing an application control using ntfs permissions um is doesn't doesn't count as app control no so yeah. it's on this statement <laughs> saying like you know which at the end of the day is tied to privilege right you can't rely on yeah. privilege to do your application control 
Yeah, this is the also the entire AppLocker security model in its default form, which is you can only run things from places that you cannot write to. So, right, so for example, the default rule set says that anything in C windows and C program files can execute. However, you, standard users can't write to those locations, right? But there's always exceptions to that. For example, C windows temp is is world user writable. Uh, you know, um, if you install Adobe Reader, the plugins folder is is user writable, even though it's in program files, because uh, you know you need standard users to be able to install plugins. Uh, so there's all these exceptions. We've actually written a, a, a tool that you can download for free off our website called the Allow List Auditor, where it will actually just drop executables and DLLs as a standard user in every single directory uh, across your system and tell you whether it was able to get code execution. But And it shows you where this NTFS permission security model kind of falls down. But uh, it's interesting that they call it out. I guess it's also easy for standard users to change the folder permissions uh, if they need to as well. So they're making sure now that, that, that to tick the allow listing box, you actually have to be, you know, doing it properly, I guess. And this is what you were, this goes back to what you were saying before about it becoming more prescriptive. Yeah, they've also added like at you know, maturity level two, you have to do an annual review of your allow list policies, which is you know, good practice. Um, and the other thing as well is they've also moved like the moving Microsoft's recommended block list rules, which we've talked about, which is now called Microsoft recommended application block list in Microsoft's annual renaming of everything that's ever existed. <laughs> um, and that's now also at the, you know, moved to a lower maturity requirement as well. So a yeah, level two, you also need to do that because of the low bins impact. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Now, look, uh, who was it? It was CISA as well have put out some guidance on uh, application allow listing. You were telling me about that the other day, Daniel. Yeah, like uh, it was like about two weeks ago now, um, CISA and the FBI co-released a report on the Scattered Spider ransomware campaign and Scattered Spider, uh, you know, was the, the group ransomwareing the casinos and, you know, the rest of the planet um, recently. And... Um, what they what was really interesting for us, you know, this is you know we see a lot of these releases of these sort of documents from U.S. government for years and been watching them, um, you know. But the, this is the first time they actually highlighted application control as a you know major mitigation was the top of the list. It was highlighted in a box saying, "Hey, like this is a big deal," um, and you know, application control is a, is a key mitigation here. So it was great for you know, us as an application control vendor to um, to see that in you know proper U.S. government official guidance. Yeah, yeah. And I also can't see how they can really roll that back. In future publications as well. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, it is, is the sort of yeah, it's the sort of recommendation <laughs> that once you make it, you don't unmake it, you know. And I think that my experience of you know dealing with you guys for years now is that your business just consistently grows, you know. Like it's not one of those businesses that goes absolutely mega ape shit, uh, like one of these new whiz or lacework or whatever with a you know eleven gajillion dollar um, uh, valuation, but it just like is consistent growth, not a trickle. It's fast growth. It's not crazy growth, but it's just. Un, sort of unstoppable and it just sort of feels like that linear line upwards is just going to continue forever yeah i can't see it becoming less relevant i guess um and what i am actually really interested to see and and we have seen a few uh, a few bits and pieces of this particularly in the north american market is now that you know especially the u.s government is recognizing things like allow listing as you know hey this is actually a good way forward you know there has been companies that have come before us and uh, have done this before of course um but I'm interested to see if there's a revival of, you know, allow listing feature sets in other companies' products. 
Now, I reckon that's, I reckon that's, I was thinking about this myself, and I think that's what's going to happen. I think some of these EDR vendors are going to introduce some rudimentary allow listing to let people check the box, but it won't give them, I don't think they're going to introduce the same level of like execution control that you've got, which really yeah. knocks a lot of the Lolbin stuff on its head. So a lot of these Chinese APT groups now are doing living off the land, uh, you know, using that as their primary sort of TTP set. Um yeah, I, I, you know, your your stuff is a really good defense against that. So it's interesting that you say that because yeah, the same thought, exactly the same thought occurred to me, which is that I think we're going to see some bad allow listing functions creep into the EDR platforms essentially. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. I would say, I would say, yeah. Then you know, you're going to have like the minimum viable, but you know, unless they're really basing it on like the Australian maturity model, like it's going to be really hard for them to get value. I think what we'll see as well will just be again like, we, and we've seen this in the past with the essential eight and stuff. They'll just be like the every vendor will say we do allow listing, um, but it will be their own definition of that. Like companies will come out and go, we do allow listing will be for URLs, not for files, and mm. you know, or be a privilege management, not for application control. So yeah, it'll mess and things I think up. With that's why. You- the, the proof is in whether it actually works or not. And that's why, yeah. you know, we've... I, I oh, think it'll be horrible. It will be horrible. It will be <laughs> purely there for a compliance checkbox. Like this is... Because I it's so... I, I literally have thought through this like recently and I'm like, yeah, they're going to do it. They have to eventually because it's a feature that more and more people are going to want. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's why, you know, I think we're focusing a lot, well, we are internally on releasing a lot of tools that actually... Because the validation of your security is really important if we can code tools that allow you to independently verify and audit then you can you can't argue with the thing that executed something on your system i guess and that's sort of i think the approach that we're going to take to prove out you know the the effectiveness of these things and including our own solution as well right like we want to we want to make sure that people are, are getting good security outcomes from what they're deploying All right, uh, Daniel Schell, Dave Cottingham, thanks a lot for joining me uh, for that conversation. Very interesting stuff. I look forward to chatting with you again next year. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. That was Daniel Schell and Dave Cottingham there with a chat about changes to the ASD's Essential 8 maturity models. Big thanks to them for that and big thanks to Airlock for being a sponsor. You can find them at airlockdigital.com. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Mm